Hello everyone and a very warm welcome back to Footprints. Oh, listen to those gorgeous birds. As it's now spring, we thought we'd bring the outside in this month and have a listen to the call of the wild. This episode is all about the wildlife and it's been my greatest pleasure and privilege to meet six people whose knowledge and passion is infectious. I hope you'll think the same. Later on in the show, we'll survey newts with Lucy, explore mosses and lichens with Alan, spin wild webs with Catherine, meet the toad patrol, and dig deep to find adder's tongue ferns with Karen. But let's start at Bath City Farm and meet the star of the show, and he's a robin. Here is naturalist Mike Williams to tell us all about him. Yeah, his name's Ribbon, and um, I've known him for two and a half years. Came down here during the pandemic uh, on my daily walks, and uh, he just came up to me one day, landed on my boot, and then landed on my shoulder, and then on a branch by my head and started chatting to me like he was my best mate. I came down the next day and he did it again, and the next day I brought some food, and I've been coming down most days ever since. He's just playing back. There he is on the branch in front of us. Yeah. His girlfriend is getting ready to nest. And as she's getting ready, she starts calling to him for food. He's got to bring her gifts of food on a regular basis. As he brings her food, she then makes a judgment on when to make the nest. If he's bringing enough food and enough quality food, she'll feel it's time to make a nest because that means there'll be plenty of food for the, for the chicks. Um, he's also got to supply most of her food when she's sat on the eggs as well. They'll probably have three or four nests between now and, and June, and not all of them will make it. Last year, out of three nests, they only had one chick that actually survived, who's his son, who lives over the other end of the farm now. Oh, look, he's just, he's about, I don't know, two feet away from you now, isn't he? I wonder if he'll sing for us. Well, at the moment, he's chatting quite a lot. They do this thing called subsong, which isn't quite singing. Sometimes it's so quiet, it's like as quiet as a whisper. And we don't know why they do it. I think they do it for either enjoyment or for, for practice. They're practicing for their, you know, their actual calling, um, their singing. And it's the bird often with the most rich and varied song that is often most attractive to the females. So they have to really work at their song. Every time they they open their beaks and sing it's different they never do the same bit twice they have phrases they return to but every, every individual call is different what are you feeding him like uh, at the moment it's a peanut cake but what i'll i'll give him now because it's their favorite is some mealworms and it's often said that a robin will sell its soul for a mealworm See how he's holding them in his beak? He's not eating them. And he'll collect three or four, and then he'll fly off and give them to his girlfriend. Off he goes, down there, where she awaits. Will she eat them? Yeah. I guess that'll help her produce nice, strong chicks. Yeah, it will. The thing with robins, why, why they're so tame, they're back in the olden days, they used to follow wild boar around wild boar are always digging things up and they like things like worms and insect grubs that are in the soil and they'd often follow the wild boar 
and eat what they, all the things they've dug up. Of course, we hunted wild boar to extinction a few centuries ago. So they learnt that humans also tend to dig things up. So they started following gardeners about and farmers about. And it seems to have been to their advantage because the, the nation's favourite bird has voted twice in, in different polls. And, um, and people do like to feed them. Robins, like most songbirds, are territorial. They, they have very set, defined territories, and they advertise the fact that they have a territory by singing. That's the point of singing, saying, this is my patch. And it's almost a warning to other robins, saying, you know, if you, if you come too close, I'm going to fight you. And they, the singing does actually prevent a lot of fights. Sometimes when there's a bit of a, a rivalry between two robins, they will just sing at each other. It's, it's quite cute. But sometimes they will fight. I've seen it, and it's, it can get quite violent. Here he is, back again. Uh, he's held the same territory for as long as I've known him, which is over two and a half years. He did get evicted briefly last year. Um, this was just after his, uh, his only chick that made it last year um, had just left the nest and another robin came in, they had a fight and the other robin took the territory. And then this little chick, this little fledgling, was um, wandering around looking for its parents and couldn't find them. So I ended up coming down several times a day to make sure I had enough food and became quite friendly with it. And then it got its red feathers and the other robin kicked it out because that's what they do. It moved around the farm a few times, but wherever it moved, it always found me, but it hovered in front of me. And it's now set up on another part of the farm. Um, it's got a girlfriend and she's on the nest right now. So, And then it was about a month after Ribbon got evicted from his territory that he came back. I... I had feared the worst because I hadn't seen him in a month but one morning he popped his head out of a bush tweeted at me I couldn't believe it I took some food out and he came straight to my hand as usual just to make sure it was him and then over the next hour I saw him chase off the other robin <laughs> he took his territory back and he's now got even more territory because his neighbour's gone missing and he's taken he's taken some of his neighbour's territory as well as former neighbour's territory have a ribbon. He is. He's a very successful robin. And his favourite place is the cherry tree now. He likes to sit in the cherry tree when he's got nothing else to do. Have you always had an affinity to wildlife all your life? I can't remember a time when I didn't. Well, I think we should take our leave of ribbon. Thank you for entertaining us and teaching us so much today. Well, me, I should say. <laughs> <laughs> not, not Mike. Oh, I love it that robins have a sing-off to resolve their conflicts. We could do with some of that. So next, staying at Bath City Farm, let's meet Lucy Bartlett, our very own Lucy, and see how the newt population is doing in their ponds. Good morning, Lucy. Hello, Pommy. Oh, we're newt hunting. 
We're new hunting on a lovely sunny day, although slightly chilly. So here we are, a bar city farm, beautiful sunny day, walking down to, well, where are we walking? We're walking right down to the bottom of the farm where there's a beautiful wildlife pond. This is the best city farm in the region, isn't it? In terms of location, yeah. this is just perfect. Yeah, you can't. You can't beat it, especially on a sunny morning. So we're here quite early in the morning. It's just gone half seven. So the animals are up. And we can uh, see the beautiful view of the city. Yeah, so I was here last night, about 12 hours ago, and put my new traps out. And so now we're going down to empty the traps and see what's in there. That's why we're here so early. I don't really like leaving them stuck in their traps longer than absolutely necessary. I mean, they'd be fine in there for a long time because they're at the bottom of the pond, but I still prefer to release the newts as early as possible. And from here we can see right over to little Salisbury Hill. There's not a cloud in the sky. You can see the abbey really nicely from here, the way the sun's shining behind it, see how it sticks up. Depending on what time of day you're here, you can't always pick it out. It's really imposing, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And you can see Lansdowne Crescent up there. We've got five what are called box traps and they're essentially a sandwich box with something cut out of them with a plastic bag attached to them. The actual trap is sitting right on the bottom of the pond. The pond is looking in, in pretty good condition. Um, the farm have been doing lots of work on it to sort of clear it of too much vegetation and too much shading from the trees. And what we're hoping is in the bottom of these traps that will have walked into it overnight are hopefully two species of newt that we know are usually here. We haven't surveyed yet for them this year. We're hoping for some great crested newts, which are the biggest and rarest newts in the UK. So it's a real treat. I come every year and survey here. It'd be interesting to know their numbers. If we wanted to really know how big the population is here, then we'd have to do it more frequently in a more scientific way. But we're just really making sure that they're still here and that there's a reasonably healthy, healthy number. I have to ask, why newts? Oh, you wait till you see them. Come on then, let's have a look. <laughs> so Lucy's pulling in the float, using her grabber to lift out the trap, which is inside a plastic bag. Here it comes. Exciting. I'm just carefully making sure there's not, because you can see that there's one slightly over the edge there, so I'm just going to flip that back in. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh my word. There's loads. I think the pond is in a healthy state. Oh, my goodness. Look at those. There must be 20 or 30 in there. Well, we are going to count them, so hold that thought. So do you see that this one, Yeah. these two and this one are much, yeah. much bigger than yes, the other ones? Yes. So these are the great crested newts. Oh. So these are a protected species in this country. Well, there's quite a lot of them, Lucy. So there's one, two, three females. Oh, she's lost her tail. Oh. Three females. And this one, if you can see, he's got a bit more of a crest. Yes. In the deeper water. He has. He's got a he's lovely a, crest. And the crest goes all the way down his tail. So that's the male, great crested newt. So we've got three females and one male, and then we've got about two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve. Oh, I should think about 30 
these smaller ones are palmate newts. There are three species of newts in the UK, and the one that we don't have here is the smooth newt, which is a similar size to the palmate newts. So we know that these... Let's see if I can find a male palmate newt. There's a lot of females in here. How can you tell? Let me see if I can find... The males have got a more... They've got very padded back feet. Okay. Oh, here's a male, look. Do you see how um, his back his back feet are, are oh, like yes. pads? Yes. And then he's got a little... Oh, yes, very different to the females. Filament coming out of the back of his tail as well. So I'll just show you as well the back of... The br- oh, beautiful thing Lucy. about a great crested newt is it's orange oh. underbelly. And these are... These are like fingerprints, so they're unique. So that was the most beautiful pattern of orange and black, almost like a leopard. They're only in the pond to breed, so they'll only be here for a few days, a few weeks at this time of year until they've mated and the females have laid their eggs and then they disappear off into the undergrowth, apart from the the babies that will stay in the pond for a year. Oh, they're so now, beautiful, aren't are they? are they not the most <laughs> beautiful, so beautiful thing you've ever seen? <laughs> right, I'll get my notebook so that I can record how many we've got in here, although it's going to be slightly tricky to count the things. Lucy, why is this pond so attractive to the newts? There's a number of things that make, that make a pond really good for newts. No fish, not too much shade nice and open but with areas where they they need vegetation around the edge because that's where they're going to lay their eggs and then they just need it to be safe for them during the mating season sort of when it warms up a bit aprilish till juneish and then they go back into the undergrowth so if people wanted to attract newts to their own garden pond i mean would newts come to a garden pond i suppose they might with that if no fish yes in theory Unless it's my pond, (laughs) which is in the wrong place, actually. It's under two trees, so it doesn't really work. So they always come back to the same pond to breed. They come back to the pond that they were were born in, like frogs and toads do. But when the population gets too big for one, it will look for other ones. So you need a network of ponds in an area. There aren't that many ponds in Bath, actually. So it's good to have lots of ponds in lots of people's back gardens, and they should find it eventually. I mean, you wouldn't want to introduce them because there are amphibian diseases and things like that that you can spread around but if they naturally colonize it great so build a pond in your back garden everybody should have a pond even if it's just an upturned bucket or washing up bowl in their garden because it's great for all sorts of things not just newts thanks there to lucy and now we move from newts to spiders i met up with Catherine turner at haycombe cemetery where she took me on a walk towards English Coombe and got me down on my hands and knees, peering into the long grass. It's beautiful down here. I, I love the way you can walk away from all that noisy traffic and you, you come down and you're, you're in the countryside. So where are we heading? There's some fields further down towards English Coombe itself. And there are, yeah, there's an abundance of spiders there. One of the biggest is the wasp spider um, that's found locally. Um, there have been more and more sightings of across the UK. And that's really, that's one of the biggest ones in weight. I, I don't know the actual weight of them, but they're one of the heaviest spiders in the UK. So their bodies are quite large, coming up to two centimetres in size, not including the legs. Gosh, that's huge. They're very impressive. And yet they're, 
very, very difficult to find because they, they build their webs in long grass. And some of the smallest might be... There are some that are less than a millimetre across when they're adults. Wow. This is just a, an untouched open field, so it's an absolute haven for, for wildlife. It, they, I haven't seen anything cut back here at all, so it's, it's amazing. The old plants from last year, they've still got their dried up flower heads and that's an excellent place to find spiders and, and the like. Let's go and have a look. A little retreat here on the flower head. That's a species called Dictina. Dictina? Yes, yeah, they're quite abundant. So when you're looking, are you looking for webs? Yes, yeah, quite often. But I will also get on my hands and knees and sort of look down at the ground level and it's amazing what you can find just doing that as well. Have you always got down on your hands and knees and looked into the grass? Uh, yes, I used to do it as a, as a child. I used to go out in my parents' back garden and I used to see what I could find there. Can you remember the first time you saw something that really excited you? Well, I, I do remember finding a beetle and I, I looked it up and it turned out to be a devil's coach horse beetle and that was a very exciting sort of beetle. They're quite fearsome. And I did actually try and keep it as a pet when I was very small. <laughs> and that was until uh, I realised that it could actually give you a, a little nip. <laughs> oh, really? Yes, yes. It's got quite strong jaws. And I, I really stick quite soon after that <laughs> back into the garden. <laughs> if you were doing some PR for spiders, because, I mean, out of all the creatures, spiders seem to be the one that people are scared of. What would you say to turn them around? Um, be curious about them. Try and find out more information about them. Anything you read in the newspapers, they're always really, really terrible slants on, on the spiders. They're very, very anti-spider. And that just makes you even more scared what you can read. But in the UK, there's, there's no spider that's venomous enough to, to harm you. The worst ones will be feel like a bee sting, and, and that's it. What do they bring to the world? Well, they're ac absolutely excellent pest control in your house. So they'll eat things like flies, will they? Flies, um, any sort of bugs that you've got in the house that you, you don't really want, you know, sort of insects, yeah. yeah so. they'll, they'll mop them up. So when you see a spider at home, leave it where it is? Some spiders prefer to be outside, but yes, just house spiders and, and the cellar spiders, the long skinny ones that you get from your ceilings. Yes, absolutely, leave them be. <laughs> leave them be, because they're going to clear up all the, the bugs. Well, what eat spiders then? Birds, I guess, don't they? Birds, other spiders. There are some little spiders that specialise in eating other spiders, in fact. They're <gasps> called pirate spiders. So what are the spiders doing now in April? There's a lot of breeding going on, sort of, with the, with the ones that like the summer. And they lay eggs, do they? They do, yes. All sorts of places to lay eggs. I mean, you've probably seen little balls laid along under your windowsills. Yeah, they're, they're very, very common. just sort of running about down here is um, tiny little black spiders. Bodies only about a oh, centimetre across. Yes, there's one there. They're, they're very speedy and they'll whiz away when you walk near them. Um, those, those are the um, Pardosus family, they're, they're um, wolf spiders. At this time of year, you'll see them everywhere. Everywhere you go in your garden, they'll be dashing away from you. Gosh. Obviously they have webs and that's mainly to catch food, am I right? Yeah, they use webs for catching food, but not all spiders do that. 
Some are just will just hunt on the ground and, and catch their prey. But the ones that do build webs, yes, they are generally for catching food. But as we've seen here, they build silk retreats to keep safe in as well. So and that's another use for their silk as well. Wow. And there's a very fascinating spider called a spitting spider. Oh. I found a, a couple in baths, but I think they're relatively common. And they catch their prey by actually spitting out silk from their mouth parts. So they're wow. a bit different to the other techniques of, of catching prey. Clever. So we're now looking in the very long grass. Yeah, so I'm, I'm looking all the way down through the grass to the, to the sort of ground level, which is, here the grass is a good foot and a half tall or even two feet tall here. And if you start looking at the ground level, yeah, there is, there is a little wolf spider down here. Is that? Yes, she probably just dashed off. <laughs> she dashed off, but, you um, saw yeah, her, but I'm, I didn't see her. There's actually so there's much. One. Oh, yeah, there's there one. Yeah. That's a spider. It is, yes. Yeah. So this is one of the pirate spiders that I was talking about, the spider hunters. Oh. So they look very... Um, They've got very long legs. They do, yes. And I think that sort of helps them when they're, they're hunting other spiders. Tiny and delicate. Yes, absolutely, yeah. You've taken me to a new universe that's just below my feet, but it's absolutely teeming with life. Do they do different things at night of the day? Yeah, some spiders are nocturnal and some love to be out in the sun. So the wolf spiders you see dashing around your garden, they, they absolutely love to sit and sunbathe. But there's quite a lot if you go out with a torch at night, you'll see a whole, whole range of other spiders um, around the place. Thank you so much, Catherine. You're very welcome. It's a passion of mine and if people could just come out and, and find out what's out here, you know, I'm sure a lot more people would be sort of very interested as well. From one cemetery to another, Alan Rayner is up next. We met up in Smallcombe Cemetery this time. Alan is a specialist in mosses, lichens and liverworts, of which there are over a thousand species in the UK and more than a hundred in this cemetery alone. They are collectively known as bryophytes and I started by asking him what they are. Essentially, they're small organisms. They can dry out absolutely without dying, but very much their ability to live is dependent on absorbing sufficient moisture to keep them going. So they can't sort of grow to the sort of size that we see trees uh, growing because they don't have a conductive system as such that enables them to conserve water in their bodies. They form an equilibrium with their surroundings. So they don't get very big. While very small, they express at the microscopic scale, at the microcosmic scale, if you like, all the diversity of pattern that you will see in much larger life forms. And that's one of the things that I find absolutely fascinating, how we can get a repetition of the same patterns at different scales of organization. And the mosses and liverworts and the lichens express very complex life forms but at a relatively minute scale. Uh, so we need to look at them very closely in order to be able to really appreciate what we're seeing. If we just look at that little patch of yellow lichen over there. Such a bright yellow, It's a bright it? yellow. It's the one called Caloplaca flavescens. Okay. Uh, but you just think, if you've never looked at it properly, you'd think, oh, well, you know, that's just a blob of yellow on a stone wall. Let me show you what it looks like when you look through a hand lens at it. If you can look at the margin, 
and you can see the sea rising across a beach. Oh, yes. Yeah, with all the ripples and the fan-like forms, the wave forms. Okay, you can see that now as a beautiful expression of flow. So this blob of orange, as you called it, became alive under the hand lens. Yeah. That's living on that piece of stone. Yes. How on earth is it getting any nourishment at all? Well, of course, lichens are very interesting organisms because I call them photosynthetic sandwiches. Because they're actually a combination of two or even sometimes more than two radically different kinds of organisms. If you think of a sandwich, the bread is formed by fungus. The filling is formed by either green algae or blue-green bacteria. Yeah? So they have a photosynthetic filling and put the two together and you've got the ability to grow in extraordinarily exposed and barren places. So essentially lichens cover what would otherwise be bare parts of the planet. And they often grow very, very slowly. This one will grow less than a millimetre a year. And lichens themselves form four different kinds of, of, of life form, actually. The one you're looking at there is called crustos because it forms a thin crust. There are other lichens which are more sort of leaf-like or ribbon-like, which we call folios. There are other lichens which are like little trees, uh, which we call fruticos. And then there are others which are just sort of powdery and we call them leperos. Tell me about life growing up for you? Was it about looking at mosses and liverworts? As I say, I was born in Africa, but I came to Britain when I was nearly eight years old. And I hadn't been to school properly before then, which was good because my early childhood was spent in an African garden, climbing trees and becoming, if you like, in tune with the natural world rather than being stuck in a classroom. So being stuck in a classroom was something I hated and always have done, actually. I went to very high-pressure school. My parents were very anxious for me to, you know, to go to Cambridge, to get a brilliant degree, all these sorts of things. But in the process, I, my soul suffered. Mm. You know, my father was a naturalist, you see, and of course he conveyed his love of the natural world to me. He was a mycologist. He loved fungi. I learned to love fungi with him. I discovered that we worked together in an extraordinary way because he was a highly analytical-minded scientist and I was highly intuitive, more like my mother than him. And put the two together, it's very, very powerful. Put the intuition together with the analysis rather than split them apart. And you actually get to a sort of quite a deep understanding and ability to recognise organisms. I've probably got several thousand Latin names in my head. But essentially, each of those Latin names means a pattern. It's all based on pattern recognition. And then there's a, a, a nice lichen on here. On this particular gravestone, it's one called Crottle. Crottle? Yes. It's... Alan, I wouldn't come here and think that's a beautiful lichen. Oh, but have a look when you have a look. <laughs> you know, again... I would think at, that's at, a bit crusty and... Look at the flow form through the lens. Oh, it's like coral. Exactly. It's like a coral reef. Yeah. So this is uh, oh. one, one that's known as folios. This is the folios habit. And the patterns on it are beautiful, The patterns, yes. It's, it's actually sculptured with a beautiful network of ridges. And actually, if you go further back in, you can see lots and lo- lots of, oh, lots yes. of little pinpricks. 
So should we move on a little bit more? Yeah, if you like. You know, the extraordinary thing is, you know, that you can read it just looking at a patch of moss down there on that, that path, and it's all dried out. This is a really important technique for bryologists. Oh. Is we wake it up. Oh, you're spraying it with water? Yeah, I'm spraying water. it with water. They, they are extraordinary organisms. Can you see the mosses down there waking up? I really can. In response to that kind spray of, of water. They're becoming bouncy, aren't That's they? That's right. They're they taking the water up. They, they can dry out virtually completely and then take the water up and be photosynthesizing again within minutes. And then I put the hand lens down there. Yes, have a look down there. Well, we are literally looking into a piece of gravel path with some moss that's woken up. It's like a new universe, isn't it? Yes, it is. It's got such depth and colour. Yes, colour I mean, and there's texture. There's so many colours in there. That's right. And shapes. So if you were a tiny little beetle, you'd have a very, very different view of the world than we have out here. Absolutely, yes, yes. Well, perhaps it would not be so very different. <laughs> perhaps it wouldn't be different it's, at as, all. As, because we're recognising that we're getting the same pattern repeated yes. at different Yes, scales. no, you're right, aren't you? You're right. Yeah, so we can just wander up here a little bit. There's another moss I might show you called heart's tongue thyme moss, which basically has leaves exactly like heart's tongue fern, but very, very much smaller. And do they grow near heart's tongue ferns? Yeah, they often grow together, more or less together, yes. Oh, this is one of my favourites here. Look at it. Look, it's like curly hair. Do you see that the, the leaves are all curled into, into beautiful hook shapes? And so that's why you're getting this lovely, sort of crispy, curly appearance. It's just marvellous, isn't it, to, to look at that and, and, and just feel... You see, I feel it. I, I feel it in the heart when I look at these, these organisms, when I feel the flow. It's as though you can feel the current, yeah, within the organism. And that's a, totally different from looking at it objectively. You know, the terrible thing we human doings is to objectify one another and to objectify nature. And then that sets us at odds. That gives us that sense of being in conflict. That's very beautiful, that one. It is, isn't it? Do you see it's got little bristles sticking out of the ends of the leaf? Oh, yes. It's called Cirifilum piliferum. Piliferum means you've got a little hair point sticking out of the end of the leaf. Very fern-like, you know, it's funny you should mention ferns, and then it has these pale shoot points. But then you look at it, you then find the little bristles on the end of the leaves. So that's... Uh, There's maybe microscopic bristles on the end of the bristles. <laughs> Almost certainly, yes. <laughs> Thank you so much, Alan, for showing me a, literally a whole different world. Right, well, it's a, a great pleasure to do so. OK, now it's back to another creature that for six weeks of the year migrates to its favourite pond to breed. This involves a dangerous journey, dodging traffic and meeting very high walls. Do they need a bit of help? Let's meet Helen Hobbs, the patrol manager for the Chalcombe Toad Patrol. Oh, look, no, I can see one just there, look. Oh, In fact, I can see two. Oh, yeah. 
Oh, little toad tadpoles. Toad poles. Yeah. Quite often here they're all mixed up together, so they're not that, uh, toad spawns are not that easy to spot, but uh, we I've have got, had a lot of spawn this year, which is really, really good news. I've got my eye in now. They're all round the edge. Can you yeah, see there? there Look, they they're all feeding. Yeah. I mean, Fabulous. And we have just walked down from Chalcombe Lane down to the huge pond. In fact, I might call it a lake even, where the toads, newts and frogs come to. And tell me more about the, the toad patrol that happens every year. Yes, each year our group manages the closure of the road from mid-February to the end of March for the toad migration. Uh, this is a historic migration route for amphibians. That's common toads, common frogs and newts. They come from various directions, mainly from the hills below Lansdowne, where they hibernate over the winter. They also come from gardens and surrounding areas, and they're all making their way down to this wonderful lake to breed and lay their spawn. Toads particularly are under threat. They've declined nationally and globally by uh, about 68% over the past 30 years for, from research. And um, it's estimated that 20 tonnes of toads are killed on the road each year. 20 tonnes? Oh! So here at Chalcombe, the problem that the toads face is that as they come down from the fields and surrounding area, once they reach the road, if they manage to get across safely, they're met by lots of high walls with very few places for them to get through. So that's why we do um, what we do and come out with buckets and torches every evening for the period of the road closure and uh, pick them up if we see them in the middle of the road and then pop them through. The closest place that we can find where they can carry on safely down to the lake. It's important that we don't move them away from the migration route. We want them to be as safe as possible. A really suitable night will be a nice drizzle, 11 degrees or so, and uh, then we can be pretty sure during that that time that um, we will have some movement and it's important to monitor what's going on here because of the decline we like to know what's happening we know that we'll never count every toad or frog or newt that's crossing the lane because they often do that when after we've gone home behind our backs but uh, at least it gives us a feel for what's happening here and that the population is is doing quite well compared to other places I know it's not easy sometimes for people to identify the difference, but actually if you see them side by side, it is very obvious. Toads are, are brown and warty. Um, they move quite slowly rather than, than leap around like frogs. Um, they also have lovely orange coppery eyes with horizontal slits. They're, they're really very charming. Uh, frogs have much moister skin, they have a pointed nose, can be various colours, through from grey to green, brown, even quite a reddy brown. So, Helen, have you... Oh, look. Mm. Oh, beautiful goose flying in. Has being a naturalist always been what you've been up to, or have you done other things? My love of toads, really, and amphibians generally started in later life. As a child, they were very common... 
and um, I didn't really pay much attention, to be truthful. But when I moved to my current home, I found toads and frogs in my garden and built a, a big wildlife pond for myself. Sadly, the toads disappeared, so I started to help at uh, Charlecombe. It's an amazing thing you do. Tell me how important the volunteers are to you. Oh, the volunteers are just wonderful. We have about 40 or 50 each year who come out every evening and monitor what's going on, whatever the weather. It's disappointing if you come out on evenings when there's nothing to be seen, but equally it's so rewarding if you're here on a busy evening. Thank you so much, Helen, for showing me this beautiful place. It's absolutely staggering and very exciting to see little tadpoles and toad poles. So we're going to go back up this steep hill, back up to the owner of the lake, Mrs Berry, and have a word with her. Yes, they've got a lot of brick walls down here, so they have to have some help from these very kind ladies who pick them up and put them over the wall, I believe. <laughs> now, how long have you lived here? Since 1965, right. and when we built it. You built the house? Yes. Did you build the lake? No, no, my father-in-law did that. Alderman Alan Berry, okay. uh, a mayor of Bath, and he built it, he had it excavated. It is spring-fed, so, you know, it's nice, clear water which is what the toads and the newts and the other things like. And he had his excavation, I think it's about 49 years ago now. And do you come out in the evenings and patrol no, up and watch. down? and I speak to them when they go up the road. <laughs> <laughs> I see the lights through my front door and I think I open the door and I say, how, you know, many tonight? Not very good tonight. Or yes, very good night, you know. Oh, wow. Yes. Oh, well, a pleasure to meet you and thank nice you for letting you. us go down. That's all right. Finally, I was delighted to speak to one of Bath and North East Somerset Council's ecologists, Karen Renshaw. She wanted to show me a patch of ferns. Here she is. It's a little plant and it's called adder's tongue fern. And it's really, I think, a charismatic plant. It's um, characteristic of old undisturbed meadows. It's not that frequently found, but I was delighted to stumble across it one day. And once you've seen it and you get your eye in, there's often quite a lot of it. And it's very unique, I think. It's got interesting characteristics. Come on then, let's go and have let's a look. Find it. It's a lovely unimproved hay meadow. It's a priority habitat and it's just amazingly rich and full of different grasses and plants and lots of insects. And it's just a really lovely place. But it does have this special little plant, which I'm hoping we're going to find. We'll have to scrabble around a bit. What are we looking for? Something quite small by the look of it. It's a green leaf, single leaf that pops up. And then it, it also comes up with a spike, which is how it gets its name. It looks a bit like an adder's tongue. And that's the kind of spore-bearing part of the plant. So I'm definitely going to um, find it, I promise. Put you all this speak. way. <laughs> Now, I can start to see it now. Can you see here? These little tiny blades, they're very bright green, and suddenly you get your eye in, and there's lots of them. Oh. And then, can you see in there? There's a tiny little um, spike. This is not the best one to show you, but there's this spike that starts to look like an adder's tongue. There, that's much clearer on yes. that one. Yes, yes. 
I mean, they're gorgeous little things. And then if you look around, you start... It's like they've, oh, look they were that. hiding from us before they and suddenly hiding. they've all popped up. And they're all over um, the place. And they're all over the place. And what's quite interesting is that, you know, they're very bright green plants. They use the sun to um, generate their energy. I mean, to me, they look like grass, but they're ferns, you see. They're ferns. They have this leaf and the, the spike is called a spadix, which has the spores on eventually when the seeds have grown. But sometimes they can survive underground. So they get the nourishment from fungi and microorganisms uh, in the soil. So sometimes they won't put the leaf up, I guess, if the conditions aren't right or for whatever reason. So they can sustain themselves for perhaps more than a year underground and not photosynthesize, which is amazing for a green plant. It is amazing. And so are they all connected underground? They will be connected through the uh, mycorrhiza and all the elements in the soil, but I think that's why they're characteristics of the old grasslands, because they're undisturbed and they've had the chance for that soil community to, to develop. And I think that's why it might be hard to re-establish them elsewhere if you haven't had that long length of time for those symbiotic relationships to occur. The genus is, is kind of a little bit famous, I think, amongst fern people, because they have an amazing number of chromosomes. It's a little bit unclear as to why, but this genus has got the, the species with the, the plant with the most chromosomes. I think it's about, it's over a thousand. We've got 46 as a human, but most species tidy themselves up and they don't accumulate so much. What's extraordinary about it is you absolutely would not see it in this grassland unless you were, like us, kneeling <laughs> and looking into the grass. And then you see it's everywhere. It's everywhere in, in this little area. And each year, faithfully, it pops up. Um, and I can rest assured that everything in the field is, is OK. <laughs> I mean, each one that's popped up is no more than two centimetres high, is it? Not at present. It will get a little bigger. I'm never going to be able to walk about again. I'm going to be just <laughs> crawling around, crawling about, <laughs> looking at what's on the ground. I mean, they're everywhere, and um, they are everywhere. You're an ecologist, so you have been a naturalist all your life, have you? Well, to some extent, but not a massive amount. I mean, I was always interested in wildlife, but I've just been fortunate that I got a job with the local government a long time ago, and have had this amazing privilege to, to see how things have changed with our understanding of ecology and the importance to communities, really. And I'm going to stand up. Yeah. Um, so just give us a quick rundown on the state of, state of wildlife. Yeah, well, we are in a difficult place. It's not a great story at the moment. So many species globally and nationally and locally have been in decline. But we are at a point where so many people are aware to this now, and that's, that's the difference and that's the optimism, is that we're starting to work across all sectors to, to try and um, improve things and support things. So I could list a load of facts and figures about how things have declined, but that is a bit depressing. There are species that are, are starting to show comebacks, and you've obviously probably been out to see the beavers. That's an amazing, um, oh, happy story, so and that's so exciting to, that they're in our, in our waterways. I've recently been on my, my morning walks with the dog, started to see red kite here, and I know red kite are a success story, but I haven't seen them in, on my walk, which I've been doing for about, I don't know, 10 years. I've started to see them now, so they're coming back, so that's exciting. But I think the exciting thing really is and how my job has changed is, is that awareness amongst the public, the politicians, the people I work with. Everyone now has got 
biodiversity and the need to, to do more to protect it right at the forefront of, of what they're hoping to do and needing to do. So within Bath and North East Somerset Council, we have happily declared, or I don't know if it's happily, um, <laughs> unhappily, happily declared a climate and ecological emergency. So we've put it, you know, as a really important part of, of what the council's doing. We want to be a nature positive organisation by 2030, which means that across all sectors of the council, we'll be doing more for wildlife and having a positive impact. And we've got uh, recently published our Ecological Emergency Action Plan, which we'll be implementing for the next while. So you talk about a plan that's going to be put into action. What will ordinary people like me notice? What differences will we see? Well, in the longer term, I'm hoping you'll just feel there's more wildlife around you and see more signs of it. But one of our ambitions is to provide more opportunities for people to access and engage with nature. So there are perhaps more initiatives in our parks. There'll be more areas which will be managed positively for wildlife still accessible to the public but just bringing nature more closely to people i'm hoping that you will see more birds at your bird table different species more of those red kites and that you'll stumble across plants like this in in the longer term so karen what would you say to people who don't want to feel depressed about the state of everything but maybe want to do something with their own back garden what's the what's the advice at the moment well i suppose it's it's been what it's been for a while is don't be too tidy maybe cut your grass less have it at least margins of it growing longer um, for more of the year allow a a few patches of brambles in and um, you know you can now buy all sorts of different seed mixes and shrubs that are native shrubs to to help wildlife so plants that are good for pollinators and generating bird seed there there is a lot you can do even in a a small space so um, a pond you know create a pond that's one of the brilliant things for wildlife because you get so much different um you know you get your your water bugs and you get the birds will need the water and eat the insects and you get bats flying around and i think for the you know frogs and toads at the moment are suffering because we've had the strange weather patterns we're having ponds are drying out at the wrong times so anything that we can do to help our wildlife in our gardens if you think you might have hedgehogs around let them have access in and out of your garden because that's really important have a little hedgehog highway and share your experiences with each other and inspire each other, I think. And I think there is lots of room for optimism, and I will stay that way. Oh, what a great note to end on. Thanks there to Karen Renshaw, and also a huge thanks to everyone who contributed to this month's show. If you're interested in finding out about any particular creature or plant mentioned, we've put more information in the show notes. Well, that's it for this episode of Footprints. Thank you for joining me. And don't forget, you can listen to all the previous episodes anytime you like. Please share as widely as you can with friends, family and colleagues. And for more information on Bathscape, visit the website bathscape.co.uk. We're grateful to the National Lottery Heritage Fund and players of the National Lottery for supporting our work. Footprints was hosted and produced by me, Pommy Harmer. I'll see you next month.